This week's Umbrella Cast is brought to you by Sesame. Being chased by the content beast, get Sesame, the magic marketing platform that creates and shares branded content at scale in no time. Slaughter the content beast with Sesame now. Go to sesame.com. That's S-E-S-I-M-I dot com. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's head of content, and we're switching roles for the week, Damien Francis. G'day, Cal. I've always wondered what it'd be like to sit in your seat, and I can tell you it's not very comfortable. Managing editor, Olivia Crimmel. Hello. And Mumbrella's editor at large and proprietor of Unmade, Tim Burrows. Hey, Cal. Later on, I'm going to be chatting to Amplified Intelligence's Karen Nelson-Field, as well as Hash Media's Managing Director, Jack Byrne, and Head of Planning, Andrew Pascoe, about why attention metrics are needed and what they offer. So we're trying to ascertain, which every advertiser wants to know, is whether a human has looked or, you know, sort of engaged in any moment. Why attention trace is going to change media planning if you think about uh, a lot of the key channel format decisions that a media agency makes, it helps bring a lens onto that that we just haven't had before from a literal attention metric point of view. And what is coming next in this space? So it's probably no surprise that yeah, we're lunging forward with trade because people, you know, like Jack and Andrew are sort of, you know, jumping at us saying, you know, how can we activate what we're planning? But before that, we've got some news to talk about. Damo, do you want to run us through what's coming up? Yeah, Carl, it's been a big week for big tech uh, for so many reasons. The possibly soon to be renamed Facebook Inc., uh, as well as Google parent company Alphabet, released their US Q3 financial results recently. Uh, Snow Dude, uh, Snap, and Twitter as well, by the way, but we'll be focusing on the first two, especially uh, as they've been in the headlines for other reasons as well, some pretty significant reasons, including an antitrust lawsuit and a lot of talk around the metaverse, uh, among other things. Uh, but aside from that, we're also going to be taking a look at News Corp, and in particular, the Foxtel upfront, which took place yesterday. Google and Facebook both dropped their Q3 financials this week. Google said that it it exceeded its investor expectations, reporting a 41% revenue rise to 65 billion US dollars in the third quarter for 2021, which is up on the 46 billion figure for the same quarter last year. Search advertising was the key driver alone, almost contributing 38 billion US dollars up 44% while YouTube advertising climbed 43% to 7.2 billion US dollars. Facebook's reporting also saw a sharp uplift with advertising revenue up 33% for the 3 months ending in September, uh, totaling 28.3 billion with uh, profits rising 17% to 9.2 billion. Overall revenue was also up 35% compared to Q3 2020. This comes in the week that Facebook is betting 10 billion in a venture into the metaverse with a new logo also likely coming tomorrow. The results arrived just days after redacted documents in relation to the ongoing antitrust lawsuit against Google in America from several states led by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton were released without redactions after New York Judge P. Kevin Castell decided Google's argument 
but the filing needed to be redacted for privacy reasons didn't hold up. It's hard to uh, pick a starting point in all of this, but Damo, you're trying to make sense of it all in best of the week. Where shall we kick off? Yeah, so a really good question, Cal. Where to kick off on that one? Um, Look, it's probably good for Google that it got to announce some super strong uh, financial results for Q3, led largely off the back of the the advertising revenue that they're bringing in. But of course, the antitrust uh, suit brings all of that into question in terms of uh, how it's run and, and what happens here. Uh, it's interestingly timed for Australia because just three months ago, of course, we had the final report from the, uh, the, the, the digital platforms inquiry as well, which noted several of uh, the facts that we've taken out of this antitrust lawsuit, which uh, involves 14 states uh, in the US, I believe, and is led, uh, as you mentioned, uh, by Texas. Uh, but really, it calls into question uh, how Google runs its uh, digital advertising business. And there were a lot of really, really uh, heavy allegations uh, within that suit, which um, essentially is uh, labeling Google as an, as an untrustworthy company, if you, if you believe what those, those allegations are. We're talking about uh, Google uh, trying to kill off header bidding, and we'll probably get into what header bidding is uh, a bit more down the track. Uh, we're talking about allegations about them uh, working with Facebook uh, to I- I enable uh, both companies to do better out of the uh, alternative uh, to header bidding that uh, Google had um, had come up with, which, which is called open bidding. We're talking about some very interesting uh, projects that uh, were alleged to be underway a project nearer, among other things, which was uh, a, a walled garden essentially for the internet that, that still uh, allowed Google to track people throughout their uh, adventure on, on Chrome uh, in particular, uh, and, and also a, a, an alleged interesting project called Project Bernanke. Um, we, you know, these, these ideas, are, they're just quite something actually, like what's been uh, uncovered. Um, but uh, the Project Menanke w- was essentially uh, a- a- allowing uh, the information from I- impressions uh, to be used in Google's favor to win uh, the auctions uh, that were happening uh, against other ad exchanges. There's so much going on here, and this all, uh, of course, comes at a, a time where in Australia, Google is facing some pretty significant headwinds uh, as well. And at a time where we're talking uh, about uh, the validity of third-party cookies. But where to start in, in, in all that, uh, I, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I, I might ask Tim where, where he wants to start and all that because there is so much. But I think important to note there, Google is, of course, defending itself here and, and is suggesting that Everything that comes in in this antitrust suit uh, isn't valid. Uh, but Tim, how did you make sense of all this? Because you know, I'll tell you what. I, I've got pages of notes here, which I, it's still swimming around in my head. How to kind of really hone in on, on what this all means? I think if I'm going to run right to the end, that the ship's kind of sailed on this one. But we'll, again, we'll probably go back to to that at some stage. What do you think, Tim? Shut me up. Well, I think for starters, um, yeah, when you talk headwinds, then um, 
it counts really as a light breeze when you've just reported $65 billion in revenue. So that probably makes up for quite a lot of it. Um, look, one of the interesting things about just reading the actual mostly now unredacted report, a few, few of the names are still redacted, but that's basically it, is how much it just lays it out. that This isn't just Google being dominant thanks to being smart, thanks to being more innovative, um, thanks to, you know, having better vision than anybody else. The suggestion in the document is it actively works to prevent competition and to maintain its dominance, which is when you get into what in the US they call antitrust over here, obviously, anti-competitive. So I... um. Look, it's it's very poetically written as well. Um, I'll just, I, I won't quote too much, but here's a paragraph from it. The halcyon days of Google's youth are a distant memory. Over 20 years ago, two college students founded a company that forever changed the way that people search the internet. Since then, Google has expanded its business far beyond search and dropped its famous don't be evil motto. Its business practices reflect that change as internal Google documents reveal. Google sought to kill competition and has done so through an array of exclusionary tactics, including an unlawful agreement with Facebook, its largest potential competitive threat, to manipulate advertising auctions. The Supreme Court has warned that there are such things as antitrust evils, This litigation will establish that Google is guilty of such antitrust evils and it seeks to ensure that Google won't be evil anymore. So it's all it's all very dramatically written from your book, Tim. I beg your pardon. Are you sure that's not an excerpt from your book? Well, um, funny you should mention that because uh, stay tuned to the Umbrella Cast, and you you might get that gift in the you, coming. You left uh, the door wide open, the, Callum. In the in in the coming weeks. Um, but look, it it makes the point that um, you, you you've got a number of things going on. Firstly, as the ACCC have already talked about, there's Google's involvement in every stage stage of the programmatic chain, from you know running the. Uh, running the systems that publishers use to at the other end running the systems that the advertisers use um but as Damo was talking about with header bidding which effectively was what publishers were beginning to use to get around the fact that google was trying to limit them to using just one exchange and an exchange that google controlled they they they, they, they came up with of ways of trying to, and you know, in internal documents, kill it. You know, the word kill was used. So that was one of the examples about, um, uh, you know, Google behaving and what, what, what will be alleged was um, a kind of, you know, anti-competitive way. I think they even um, called it an existential threat at, at some stage in there. Yeah. Look, and this is interesting because... You know, one of the things which does interest me about Google is often it's become in these dominant positions, but it's actually done it because it's faced an existential threat. So it's actually ended up coming through strong, but its survival was at risk. You know, you you could say the same about Chrome, you know, as a sort of browser platform, which has become dominant. But they only created Chrome in the first place because their kind of hold on search would have been really threatened if, for instance, Microsoft had been able to run away with things. So, you know, they, they've they ended up, I guess, like so much of the kind of sort of, you know, on social platforms, you you, the, you win or you're nowhere. 
Um, and that's you know to a, to a, to a large extent what we're what we've seen or what we're seeing with Google is by winning they then become very very powerful. But um, for me, if there was a single number which really made me just think about it, is the amount of money that publishers um, are not getting for their for ads that appear on their sites. So again, it's suggesting that. Um, uh, again, I'll, I'll just quote this one more paragraph. Google also obfuscates price transparency for publishers. Overall, evidence suggests that publishers selling inventory through Google receive approximately 70% of advertising revenue paid by advertisers. And in some cases, the amount is as low as 58%. In other words, Google's take rate is approximately 30%. And in some cases, as high as 42%. You know, and that's and the I think number you, you just have to think about. 42% of every dollar that would be ending up with publishers ending up in Google's pocket instead. No wonder it's it's so wealthy, but also no wonder digital publishers are so challenged if those numbers are in fact true. But also I think you've highlighted a really good point there in, in terms of that that distance between those figures that you're suggesting. Because... What we don't know and what is alleged in that uh, lawsuit as well is that it's so opaque, we don't really know what the figures are. We don't really know how much is is going to Google, how much the actual price was, the the cut that goes to Google, what, what the publisher takes out of, of the cut. It's very, um, I guess it's very vague. Really. Yeah, very non-transparent, you know, and that's very one of the criticisms, and, and deliberately so, to the extent that sometimes even Google staff themselves, unless they're very senior, don't know. 100%, which, which is why, you know, I, th- I think, as I sort of mentioned at the very start, maybe the ship has sailed in this one, and I have written about it in Best of the Week previously, where I, I was, it, it interests me that now, in 2021, we've decided we're going to have a really good look at this, but this is this is not a year in the making. This is years, years, decades in the making of everyone in this industry. Uh, you know, look, I, that's a generalisation. But people jumping on board the Google train, seeing the acquisitions it's made, using the technology it's providing, with the snowball effect, and suddenly that snowball has become so big that now we're turning around. And saying, well, something something has to be done. I'm not necessarily sure I can see anything uh, that could be done that would be effective aside from having Google dilute its assets, uh, which is a pretty strong thing to to make the company do. Break it um, up. Break Why it not? Up. You know, 100% I mean, break it up. I can't see know, any other option, the really. Companies. They broke up the railroads. It's just the same. You know, why hmm. does... Why does YouTube need to be owned by the same organization hmm. that owns the pipes and plumbing of advertising? And why does that need to be in the same family that owns the search browser and all of those things? There are so many separate organizations. There's no downside for Google shareholders of breaking it up. They'll end up with ownership of these new companies and they'll probably make more money than they did before. Well done, Google. You were very clever. <laughs> you were sneaky at times. Um, certainly this is what it's being alleged. And um, now it's time to reward this cleverness by breaking you up. I might um, jump in there and just um, before we we do go any further, move on to um, having a quick discussion on Facebook and the metaverse. Um, 
it's been a big topic of discussion this week in particular, as we mentioned at the top of the, the section. Um, we had an op-ed this week entitled WTF is the Metaverse. Damo, do you want to uh, kick us off here? Yeah, you, you know, I'm used to doing your role, so I was just about to jump in there myself and and, and go into to Facebook. But but good call, you've 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 segued very nicely there. Um, look, Facebook. Let, let's talk about the, the profits very quickly as well, because very similar to Google, they've done really well in Q3, 35% revenue jump uh, to US 29 billion. Profits rose 17% to US 9.2 billion. Unsurprisingly, primary driver of that is advertising revenue. Um, and what they then did, uh, or Mark Zuckerberg did, was talk long and hard about something he likes to call the metaverse, um, which comes at a really interesting time for Facebook, uh, which has its own headwinds kicking off right now in terms of the Facebook papers, which a former employee turned whistleblower, Francis Haugen, has a, essentially uh, released uh, to the world and uh, accuses Facebook of putting profits over people. But Zuckerberg sort of dazzled everyone with, with the metaverse. It's something he's actually been talking about for quite some time. This is not a new thing for, for Zuck. Uh, but what is the metaverse? Well, let's deal with that one uh, quite quickly. Uh, it, it's somewhere between our world and, and the virtual world. That's probably the easiest way to, to put it. The, the, the breakout there is that Facebook is going to try and invest or essentially going to invest $10 billion uh, into the metaverse to begin with and but, then Would you mind just because I'm, I'm not – I'm a bear of little yes. brain, Damo. Would you mind explaining mm. the, the metaverse just a little bit more, please? Yeah, look, let, 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 me, let me do that for you because in the time where you've just asked that question, I've actually been able to find in my notes where I've written that even more concisely. Uh, so I will explain that for you, uh, Timothy. I, I know you, it takes a while for you to, to grab onto these things. Um, so <laughs> the, 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 the metaverse, and now I've, now I've lost it. So the metaverse, uh, Tim, is a convergence of physical, augmented, and virtual reality in a shared online space. Uh, and some even suggest uh, that to be a proper metaverse, it needs to have a fully-fledged uh, economy in itself and all parts of the metaverse need to be in harmony. Uh, essentially, therefore, Facebook can't own the metaverse. I, I guess it would be like saying someone owns the internet. It can't essentially happen. Does that, does that explain it for you, Tim? Well, it maybe it explains why all of a sudden, this, I don't think this is metaverse, but I'm seeing a lot of ads in my Facebook feed on the rare occasion that I look for a thing called Earth 2 where you can buy land on a virtual earth, but you have to spend real money on it, which um, is uh, is right. It kind of goes into the whole NFT space then. Yes, exactly that. Yes. Well, as long as it's got its own economy and is in harmony with the rest of the metaverse, then I guess it counts. So you haven't been buying any virtual art as of yet? I'm a journalist. I don't earn enough <laughs> money to buy virtual art, Callum. I believe um, Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet was purchased for $3 million last it week. It was. But uh, let, now let me let me get back into <laughs> the reason why this could be interesting for marketers. Two, two, two points I have here. We, we talk and we laugh about the metaverse. But like I say, Zuckerberg has been talking about this for quite some time. If you actually trace it all the way back, you go back to 2014 where uh, Facebook bought Oculus a company that builds virtual reality headsets 
and it was a startup. And they, they paid two billion US dollars for that startup back in 2014. And Oculus is kind of, you know, I guess it's the key to the the metaverse in in a sense. Now that business is still a strong part of the Facebook offering, very small in the whole uh, revenue uh, of Facebook, but but still something that Mark talks about quite a bit. Uh, but also, the interesting parallel I have here with with Google is Facebook is one of the only businesses uh, or big businesses who's talking about the metaverse so strongly at the moment, investing so much money in it. Are we looking at what we were looking at 10, 15 years ago with Google and starting just to let it roll? Could Facebook become the Google of the metaverse? And here we will be in 15 years time or something like that with, hey, maybe with an antitrust lawsuit going, oh, this is amazing. How did Facebook end up in this situation? And what do we do about it now? Because we do sit here kind of laughing about it, and maybe that was a similar situation when we were looking at Google and its relationship to the internet. I could be pondering too far, but uh, I just love the me question: here. Could Facebook become the Google of the metaverse? That, that's the yep. headline for the Umbrella Cast this this week, isn't it, Callum? I believe it is. You've already Excellent. you've already written it. Excellent. Coming up next: News Corp's most profitable year yet. <laughs> In a week dominated by reports, News Corp released its annual report with Executive Chairman Rupert Murdoch calling it its most profitable yet, citing success across each of its businesses. Locally, the company closed or removed a number of its regional publications to digital-only offerings in addition to making a large number of redundancies. This report coming in the week that the Australians celebrated 10 years since becoming the first national mass head to introduce a digital subscription model. News Corp this year signed multi-million dollar deals with both Facebook and Google, uh, with Chief Executive Robert Thompson then telling the Senate committee hearing last week that these digital platforms are publishers as they publish information. So they should be bound to the same regulations as publishers in Australia. Meanwhile, News Corp's majority-owned Foxtel saw subscriptions rise above 2 million, leading to Thompson calling it its future favourable ahead of the upfronts presented yesterday. Liv, what were we to make of this report? Did anything surprising crop up? Hi, Cal. Yes, the uh, report provided some additional information about the performance of the company overall, which interestingly has uh, gone on the opposite of, of Google in that it's been diversifying and adding new businesses to its offerings of uh, key media outlets over the past few years. So, News Corp cited its ability to compete successfully for ad dollars going forward. Um, It will depend on a couple of key things. Firstly, to engage and grow its digital audience, no surprise there. Um, Its ability to collect and leverage better data and user data in particular. And then also to develop new digital advertising products and formats such as branded and custom content and video and mobile advertising And we've seen them make a number of announcements around those initiatives in the last few months, um, both here and and obviously in their operations overseas. Uh, It also cited uh, programmatic buying channels um, as putting pressure on ad revenue. And it said that regulation in the future may also uh, affect the company's ability to deliver, target and measure the effectiveness of advertising on its various platforms. It was also interesting to read, as you alluded, that after years of being underperforming, Foxtel is now cited as a star performer within the group. Um, 
I did note, however, that its ability to obtain and retain sports, entertainment and other programming rights in the future was going to be a key to its ongoing success. And, and obviously we've touched on the upfronts that happened yesterday and I'll let Tim talk about that in more detail later. Um, so the other interesting thing about the Foxtel aspect uh, is that it, it's carrying a lot of debt at the moment. Um, US $854 million or $1.13 billion Australian. It's also up against some stiff competition locally. We've seen a number of new players enter the market here, um, Disney and also Viacom, CBS with Paramount+. Plus. Uh, the report also mentioned those and the fact that getting access to the content going forward when some of the providers of the content are launching their own direct-to-consumer platforms is going to be an issue for them that they will need to address. Tim, uh, another week, another upfronts. What did you make of Foxtel's presentation yesterday? Well, look, first um, declaration of interest is they did forget me to invite me. So um, the first 15 minutes passed me by until somebody in the industry sent me a snarky screenshot of, for some reason, Mark Frain, the boss of um, Foxtel Media, the sales arm, standing in front of a sign saying, Fox Test which does look a little bit homemade. You can see that the, um, the, 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 the font is slightly different. Um, one of the things that did strike me was, was that point of comparison, you know, as you were saying in your intro and as um, Liv, Liv, Liv was talking about, Foxtel is, which, which is, is, is two-thirds owned by, by, by News Corp, is pivoting towards a streaming future. Um, from our broadcast past, so that you know, as 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 you say, um, uh, binge and Ko have now passed, and, and Foxtel now as well. But the streaming products have now passed two million subscribers, two point oh oh six million, and that is now more than the set top box customers, one point eight eight five million. So, in other words, streaming is now bigger in customer numbers than broadcast. Unfortunately for Foxtel, though, most of the revenue still comes from the broadcast side, and that's the side that's falling fast. So, you know, that, that that's some of the backdrop. So, yeah, if, if something did strike me about the upfronts, it was um, there were many years when Foxtel announced a much bigger investment in original content than this time. You know, there were only a couple of local drama things, a few lifestyle things. So it, it certainly felt that, where it's putting its bet at the moment is overseas content. Um, and, you know, obviously where, where it's well positioned is it's able to use that content more than once. So it's able to use it on the streaming services. It's able to use it on the broadcast. And of course, the main game now isn't so much in commissioned original content. It's in sport, which is expensive. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, other rights that are still in play at the moment, you know, not least the EPL. Um, that obviously everybody's going after. So it's a bit of an interim year. And then the other interim year about Foxtel anyway is they've made very clear they want to float it, want to take it to IPO because um, there is some debt there. Um, so it's very much about telling a story to the market. Um, so, yeah, definitely Foxtel in the in the News Corp annual re report as well is being presented as the, you know, the golden child through the worst. And that that could be true. That could be true. Um, but it's not all the way through yet. But but overall, yeah, I did. I think like Liv get the sense from the the annual report that 
you know, in the eight years since News Corp split into New News Corp and um, what was then 21st Century Fox, this has probably been one of their more stable years. It was interesting watching the uh, media diversity uh, hearing last week with Thompson kind of um, very much making the point to downplay News Corp's influence by saying that, you know, our, our news uh, paper revenues are going down and sales are going down. Did you manage to catch any of that, Tim? I did. And he does talk to those revenues as well in the annual report, which um, he, 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 I won't do all of his alliterations, but he does like an alliteration. So, so yes, he described News Corp as an ex on an exponential evolution. But um, yeah, in terms of the, the Australian newspapers, um, one of the big holes was in advertising revenue, which, you know, I, I think was understandable in the, in the year or year and a half that we've just had, but also signs there that it's not just on the cycle of COVID, but also more structural as well. So, you know, that old theme of when we're moving to subscribers being more, you know, more important than advertisers. And then, and that was the other kind of nugget that sort of deep in the annual report, which was of interest, was the fact that here in Australia, News Corp's revenues fell below a billion dollars US for the first time, which again was a bit of a a bit of a milestone um, because the Vienna report reports in US numbers, which is why it was that way. But um, but yeah, so it kind of it it you know it feels like an organisation which is being run a lot more leanly than, than than previously. You know, it's so it's it's delivering profit numbers. It's got debt, but it seems to be under control. There, there seems to be a plan. So I think it will probably come through to the other side okay, but a bit of a smaller organisation in the process. Coming up next, I'll be chatting to Amplified Intelligence's Karen Nelson-Field and Jack Byrne and Andrew Pascoe from Hatched Media. Today we have a panel of sorts. We have Karen Nelson-Field, founder and CEO of Amplified Intelligence, Jack Byrne, managing director of Hatched Media, and Andrew Pascoe, head of planning at Hatched Media. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Thank everyone. you. Thank you. Good to be here. So last month, um, Hatch announced that it would be adopting Amplified Intelligence's attention trace technology into its planning strategy. Uh, attention Trace being a media planner that collects data across several platforms, focusing on attention metrics to drive planning rather than using traditional uh, metrics. Karen, it would be good for you to start by explaining a little bit about attention as a measurement and the Attention Trace um, tool and its me- metrics. How does it? How does it work? Yeah, I mean that's a big question to start with, but I mean <laughs> we're solving for a problem that essentially current metrics tell us little of whether a human's actually paid any attention to an ad at all. Um, so, so attention as a, as a true measure is not device-based, but it's truly sort of telling you whether, as I said, whether a human has, you know, been distracted or whether they've sort of connected with the ad for even just a fleeting moment. So, so we're trying to ascertain, which every advertiser wants to know, is whether a human has looked or, you know, sort of engaged in any moment. So, so we've built um, quite a deep technology system off the back of this knowledge and we collect facial footage essentially from um, people who have opted in to us essentially 
putting a camera on the device that they're using and sort of having it rolling essentially while they're looking at Facebook, Insta, YouTube, BVOD, TikTok, Twitter, blah, 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 TV as well. Um, and so why, what, what, what we've then done is, you know, we've, we've tried to validate the importance of attention over the last four years before we went to productize anything. And as you would expect, you know, attention matters to advertising effectiveness and these boys will tell you that. Um, so what we've then tried to do in the last 12 months is start to say, well, how can we play a role in the recovery of this industry? And we built our first product is um, Attention Trace, which is essentially a web-based portal, as we also have an API, but essentially delivers this information to, 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 to people like Hash that sort of then can use it to... Against, I guess, index um, performance, relative performance across platforms. So, so that that's that's how what attention is, and that's that's where we started. And um, what's the kind of uptake been so far? Is it getting much traction? I understand, obviously, you've um, implemented it into Hatch's planning, but um, and I understand some of the networks are working with you. Yeah, um, how extensively? Well, you know, I was excited and not, but not surprised about. The initial MVP, we got into 22 countries, if that's any indication. Um, but um, the uptake for us is accelerating every single day. We're struggling to keep up, actually. And the reason why that is is because people are excited about a metric that's outward-facing and a metric that's not opaque. Um, so, yeah, you know, needless to say, a large majority of the holding co's have actually taken it up. But I'm more excited that also more excited, equally excited that, you know, some of the independents are, are doing it as well, which obviously is why we're here because, you know, then we sort of start to to gain critical mass. So, yeah, pretty excited for, for this conversation. And, um, Jack, was it being one of the first kind of brands to actively implement Attention Trace, was that... Being an independent that allowed you to kind of have the freedom or be in the front foot about um, kind of incorporating it as a new technology? Yeah, sure. I mean, it has its pros and cons being an independent. The biggest pro is that we can make our own decisions. We don't have to go via Sydney or Paris or wherever it might be, and, and that, that certainly helped. But, um, I mean, we first started speaking to Karen, I think it was May last year, May 2020. So it's been a journey. Um but I don't think independent is relevant in this case. It's more what we believe in terms of what's right, right? So we, we strive for work that works. We strive to provide, you know, effective media campaigns for our clients across the spectrum of all media channels. And, and we as an agency and certainly sitting within the planning team that Andrew can talk to, we believe this is the metric that is the missing link between reach and effectiveness. And uh, and that's kind of why we're here today. Yeah, and Andrew, I was going to say on that, being a little bit more closer to the actual implementation of it, what, what is it about attention as a metric that really does excite you? So if we think back to um, the first sort of advertising campaigns and the first comms campaigns, it's always been one of the key outcomes has always been a, a, a desire to get someone's attention. Um because at a really fundamental level, if you don't have their attention in any way, shape or form, 
um, then that message won't be received and, and won't be heard um, and won't cut through. So um, perhaps we can um, talk about a little bit later in the conversation about the types of attention, but at a really fundamental level, if attention isn't being paid, message doesn't happen in this case, sales results, um, behavior changes, brand perception, none of that comes as a result. Um, so that's as simple as that sounds. That's one of the core reasons we're, we're continuing to build out a planning methodology with attention uh, shaping it and, and having an attention lens on everything. Um, so if you think about it from a, you know, there's all the classic component parts of a, of a media planning or a channel planning or a comms planning methodology, um, we're working our way through and attentionifying essentially each step um, and each component. Um, one of the reasons uh, that we've been having the discussions and, and with Karen and her team and signed up to Amplified Intelligence with the Attention Trace tool is it's a really um, tangible, practical, um, fantastic way to start bringing that into our planning methodology today. So we'll build out the rest of it as we go. and We're doing that and putting different lenses on it. But also, if you think about uh, a lot of the key channel format decisions that a media agency makes, it helps bring a lens onto that that we just haven't had before from a literal attention metric point of view. So... Is this like the, is this the future of planning, Karen, or is it going to kind of go alongside some of the more traditional forms? So, it, it is the future, but it is equally a supplementary layer right now. And the reason why that is is because currency change takes time. There's politics. There's fear. There's in you know pe- stakeholders don't want to interrupt what they've been doing and not be able to sort of instantly you know, have massive gaps in their data, for example. So how I look at it is without a doubt the industry is calling for change and reach or impressions are not giving them what they need. We know that and Andrew just talked about that. And But what I see at the moment is the next few years that the data that we have is is exactly how they're using it, which is sort of a checkpoint really against the reach data that they already have while we're still trading you know, we're not Nielsen size. So while, you know, there's still data that's coming in talking about reach straight off this, the internet or the socials or the TV networks, um, this data sort of offers a supplementary layer. But eventually it will flip around and it will switch out. Um, and I think that's exciting because it's an outward-facing measure rather than an inward-facing one. Yeah, I was going to ask about what, what some of the main challenges might be in actually making that switch. I know some of these things can maybe, as you say, there there can be those challenges and the fear of the gaps in between while well, you do adapt. Is it going to be one of those things where, you know, that maybe they wait until it's staring them in the face to, to actually It's already happening, actually. So I, I wrote a paper yeah. not long ago around the innovation diffusion curve and how I feel the industry is rolling. And, you know, we've had some early adopters, um, these guys included, um, but it's now starting to get to a point where every single conversation I have with any agency anywhere in the world, the first thing they're asked by brands is what's your attention strategy? So, you know, we are moving towards the critical mass. So the FOMO is is occurring, but also beyond just FOMO, because this is not a shiny new thing. What this is, is revealing a currency issue. So I think people are becoming more aware of what they're missing out on, not from how shiny it is, but from the 
lack of effectiveness with current measures. So that I'm pretty excited about because that's been my job, you know, from with my academic history to sort of really uncover, you know, what problem we're solving for. And I think the industry is starting to become aware of it. Yeah, and Andrew, in terms of your implementation so far, I know you spoke a little bit about that before, but how, and I believe you mentioned on the um, stream a couple of weeks or last week that I uh, was a guest on, well, not a guest, I was watching, um, <laughs> that you've already started using it with um, Cars24, one of your new clients. How, how, are you using it with any other clients and how is it being responded to so far? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great um, question because it uh, lets me, I guess, put it in the context of the journey that uh, we're on as Hatched, um, but I think that the Australian industry at least is on. So I can't obviously speak too much for, for global and what Karen's seeing from some of the big hold codes and so on around the world. But um, I, I mentioned that, I guess, because even um, a bit of the profile or the noise um, off the back of us sort of um, committing to attention trace has has sort of shook the trees in terms of a lot of media owners, for instance, um, getting a bit more serious about elevating attention overall. Um, and I give that context because, um, as you mentioned, uh, Cars24, um, one of our uh, great clients, when they were looking at launching into Australia, you know, one of their key challenges as a literal new brand is we need uh, outsized attention to start, even begin to establish a brand, um, let alone a new consumer behavior. So, um, you know, one of the ways, for instance, that we've used Attention Trace, uh, both for Cars24 and are starting to use it across some other clients is at a really um, simple sounding but effective level. And that is, um, in this scenario, we might keep the budget the same that we were going to spend across screens. So all of our video screens in play, um, keeping that budget the same, but reallocating between formats um, and sometimes in some cases playing with the mix between channels, what we actually do is just get more attention seconds. So more total attention paid for that same amount. So that's one sort of key uh, use case, I guess, that we have been talking to clients about and, and they see how that's also practical as well, like right now. So we can keep building out planning methodology overall, but it also is very actionable and tangible in that application of it. So I assume then it's going to, in terms of implementing it across the industry, it's just going to, if this is a, a large uptake, it will totally have to reshape how people kind of strategize their spend because I would assume from my understanding, and Karen, please let me know if I'm wrong here, but as a premium product, it's going to cost more. But I assume that obviously also offers those better results. So... Uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that <clears throat> because CPM is not commensurate with performance. So we actually think that the current ecosystem around bidding and CPM is fundamentally pushing us downwards in terms of paying for quality content. So I actually believe that we don't pay enough for quality content. So my actual yeah. hope is that, you know, when when you really actually understand the difference between a high quality format and a low quality format, you'll potentially pay more, maybe not twice as much, but certainly more than what you're bidding now. So I'm actually hoping that it will start to put um, a bit of an equaliser between CPM and performance because it's certainly not that. 
Yeah, and and Jack, how how do you think this will change the relationship between and and the bargaining? I suppose between media agencies and media owners, for example, y- yourself and uh, Channel Nine. Yeah, sure. Um, look, the, as kind of Karen alluded to, it isn't a change. It's not a revolution. It's an evolution. So it probably augments the ch- the conversations that we're having already. Those metrics are still relevant. Reach is still relevant. All of the things that we've spoken about and, and used in the past has all been relevant. But um, I think that the difference here and, and the ability, and, and even from when we first started talking last May, the difference that Karen has built technology, developed the data, developed the methodology, all of that sort of stuff that, that allows us to measure um, some of the things that we're talking about. And, and once we can measure attention, then we can value attention. And then once we have a value for that attention, we can then trade in that attention. And ultimately, all of those things need to line up in together uh, to be able to actually action that. Now, the, the first step is probably in the, in the programmatic space and the digital space, and we've made big investments in that as a business over the last 12 months. And I think, um, and I might be talking out of school, but we, I think the first thing you'll see from us is working with Karen on, on the first means to be able to trade digitally through uh, using attention as the metric that we work towards. Now, the thing, and, and Andrew touched on it before as well, it has created a bit of a spark because the thing is the media vendors have been talking to Karen for years. You know, everyone knows that attention's a thing and all of that sort of stuff, but um, the tech hasn't been in place, the data hasn't been in place, that measurement piece hasn't been in place, and and now it's getting there and, and it's rolling at a rapid rate. We're at the front end of that. There will be great adoption and we're really excited that with the industry getting behind it because Karen talks about the uh, attention economy and that attention economy has got a lot of players, of which only we're, we're one part of. So um, I think it, it really just adds to the conversation as opposed to changes the conversation. So can I add to that, if I may? Um, what I love about what we're doing here, team, is you know, a lot of the publishers are actually, to your point, they, they have been working with me for a while, but they are also recognising how the industry is demanding human attention. And it's interesting, Andrew, because before you were talking about how, you know, attention is a measure of business outcomes in the positive, but it, the, the, the reverse is true. If you don't have any attention, your brand will actually decline. So you talk about it in the sense that you won't get any positive business outcomes, but you won't get any and it'll go backwards. So I think, you know, advertisers are starting to rise up and the publishers are listening. And we're actually getting a lot of publishers that are working with us now because they're saying, well, wow, we want to be seen as a quality attention platform. So I'm seeing a complete shift, and that's not what I was expecting. I thought our market would be marketers, sorry, advertising agency and brands, but we sort of are covering across the other side of the ecosystem who are saying, help us understand what formats work and how do we sort of package them up so that, you know, there are some quality formats and there's some maintenance formats. Um, So, yeah, it's quite exciting what we're doing. Yeah, and uh, at Nines Upfronts this year, a couple of weeks ago, they announced that you're doing, uh, I think, a research paper with them and then, you know, the other two networks over the last two weeks. Are you able to kind of go into what you're doing with the other networks a bit more? Does like your does your work with Nine kind of restrict you from doing that? Yeah, I, I work independently. So, A, I will never put a clause in my contracts to suggest that I cut it to one supplier. But B, I can't really talk about it other than to say that, you know, 
nine have sort of lunged forward with the first trial for an ongoing panel, and we're super excited. Um, absolutely, other networks are super interested as well. But um, you know, we've TV, we've done TV for lots of years, so it's and our tech keeps developing into edge computing and all sorts of stuff. So it's perfect timing for us to flex our muscles with our technology. Um, we now can tell if someone's wearing a mask. We can filter out data if it's an underage person in the house so that it's not GDPR non-compliant. So, so it's perfect timing for someone like Nine to lunge forward with a, with a trial. But, you know, the goal, and, and you know, Steve-O was clear about it, that the, the goal is ongoing collection with commoditization at the other end. And um, speaking of the kind of technology that you're working on, uh, I think you alluded to before uh, a, a little bit of something new that you are working on with Hatch. Are you able to share any details on that? Um, so, look, as a as a as an interested ecosystem person, so so my life goal is around you know, trying to understand, which is pretty sad if this is my only life goal, just saying, but um, is to try and understand how we can improve the ecosystem across the board. So there are three parts that that sort of essentially I see attention as a touch point for. And one is planning, which we are working with these teams for with now. Um, but the second piece is the trade, which, you know, Andrew did say. And then the third piece is verification. So there's there's this rounded out ecosystem. So it's probably no surprise that, yeah, we're lunging forward with trade because people, you know, like Jack and Andrew are sort of, you know, jumping at us saying, you know, how can we activate what we're planning? Um, so without a doubt, that's an imminent product for us. Um, and, yeah, so there's some pretty exciting stuff happening with that and internationally. And in, in terms of uh, in future moving to new platforms, I know you've also mentioned previously that you're kind of in the, the stages of developing a product for movies or, you know, something for audio. How would that, if you could give me an idea, work with something like a, a podcast with ads? Because obviously if my phone's in my pocket, how would you be able to tell how, I'm, how I, I am kind of responding to that? So audio is different. So anything digital and audio is easy for us to measure, but we do it in a slightly different way. So clearly we're a visual attention data collection company but what we do know and because we've been doing it for so long what we do know is attention has patterns and they're systematic so there is a certain amount of brand uplift uh, mental availability gain what it and and it seems to be systematic with how much attention you pay so the goal with audio is to reverse engineer the coefficients around attention and uplift so that we can actually make some modeled assumptions around what audio essentially achieves in a like-for-like basis. So we'll never really do visual attention to audio products, obviously, um, but we are fast-tracking towards being able to at least build something that is of similar layer. And we've done it in three countries so far. So if you know anything about me, (laughs) generalisation is the key. So we are seeing seeing some positive results. So, So podcasts are a big part of our future. Yeah. And uh, Andrew, do you think this could potentially, you know, go down the route of showing that things like, you know, if I'm on my my phone and I'm scrolling through Facebook or something and you get those ads, personally, I would just kind of scroll straight past it. Is this got the potential to, I guess, wipe that out? 
wipe out the sort of just scrolling past without giving giving ads their due. Yeah. Um, so what it will do is uh, both the, the literal tech and the and the platform in, in terms of the attention trace tool, if we talk about that, what it will do is let us evaluate these, the, these things. So it means um, not that any particular format or any particular channel gets either punished or, or lauded. It, it means we can sort of right-size them. So, you know, you, you get to a case where, you might end up from a trading point of view going in adjusting CPMs, for example, but that's not the initial goal. It's to go, what are they worth? What's their due? And putting that into the mix, um, you know, which really is also just a, a different way of saying a point that was touched on earlier from Karen about, um, you know, it, it's the classic age old, almost as, as old as attention itself, perhaps in advertising efficiency versus effectiveness. So, you know, the, the, the outcome of this, or certainly how we're thinking about it, um, isn't to try and penalise platforms that might not be giving the right attention and use it to screw people down on price. I love yeah. that. And, and adding Sorry. to that, I will say you can't change behaviour. You can't change human behaviour. So going back to the question, you know, where, where you have to accept what you have to accept. The, the amount of attention paid to ads is not going to change. Um, but we know the mediating factors that are behind that and we can at least, to Andrew's point, sort of plan against that. So so the, the answer really to that question is no. It's not going to be a point where this this isn't going to stop you from, from scrolling. It's just going to enable agencies to understand where that attention can be gained and sort of optimise against it. Yeah. And I, just finally, I, this is open to all of you is there any kind of concerns at the point that it's at about the actual metric itself or like does it does it have a bit potential to maybe go down a bit of a rabbit hole jack you got your yeah well, I, I look i think from a business perspective one of the big things that concerns me in our world in terms of dealing with clients and engaging with clients is procurement right yep. so our friends in procurement and i love you all by the way if, if you are listening in procurement um to be able to uh, educate and take them on the journey, I think marketers will get it. I think we've got to take organisations into it, CFOs, procurement, all of that sort of stuff, because it is—it's a new language. It's—it's it's us going, okay. Well, we as a agency and a, a trusted advisor of our clients and potential clients, um, we're willing to pay more for more attention, or, or we're willing to pay more for media assets that give us more attention seconds. And that's that's going to be a big challenge and that's one of the things that we're going to have to overcome. So I would say that's probably one thing that keeps me up at night. Everything else I'm pumped about. Awesome. Well, um, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. It's been uh, great to have each of you on the podcast and I uh, hope we can do it again at some point soon. Fabulous. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Kat. See you later. And that's it for this week. Thanks again to our sponsor, Sesame, and to the team for joining me. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Carl. And now that we've finished the podcast as well, I've just remembered all the technical terms that I should have said at the start. So can we start recording this uh, podcast again? Absolutely not. Okay, let me just throw them in then. <laughs> SSP, DSP, real-time bidding. <laughs> <laughs>